much. It's a pleasure to be here once again and to, to speak with my friend David Goulden, the Chief Financial Officer at Booking Holdings. We'll get into David's career in a minute, but I'd like to start with taking the time machine back two years to March of 2020. David, you're the CFO of one of the largest travel companies in the world with millions of travelers booking hotels all over the world and COVID hits and people stop traveling. What was that like when you first began to hear about COVID coming out of Asia? What were the conversations like within booking? What were you thinking? And tell us what happened. Yeah, hi, Jeff. Uh, gracious to you and thanks for invitation for being here. Um, yes, that was a, a defining moment. Of course, we all saw COVID come on very quickly, beginning of 2020. Um, within Booking Holdings, our biggest company, Booking.com, had their annual kickoff uh, meeting in January in Amsterdam, and we, um, at the last minute, uh, asked the Chinese people not to attend because we were worried about um, the uh, infection po po possibilities, even though they were in route, and we actually sent them home again. But we had we had the conference then. Literally, within six weeks after that, COVID just took over enormously, and we went from um, you know, a thriving company to a company that was almost on tickover. We uh, our new booking rates were down over 85% in April of 2020. Um, and our net booking rates, including cancellations, were in the significant negative numbers. Um, at that point in time, I remember we were sitting around, uh, around uh, the, the boardroom and trying to figure out how long we could last with no revenue. It was just kind of figuring out what happens if things were really terrible and this was just um, something that wasn't going to get better quickly. And uh, we were doing calculations, was it a year, was it two years? How much money would we have to, to go raise? To, lengthened the runway of the company. Um, very dramatic, very humbling situation and uh, one I will not forget quickly. So at the time you had, uh, remind me about how many employees and then what kind of actions did you take uh, given the fact that you had no actually negative bookings, uh, net bookings at least for some period of time. You went from what, about $10 billion of bookings a month mm -hmm. on, on order of magnitude to negative within six weeks. Incredible numbers. Yeah, just about. Uh, in 2019, we were 15 billion of revenue. Uh, we were about 100 billion of gross bookings. So your number is 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 about right. About 25,000 employees. So all um, focused on you know, literally millions of bookings a day. I believe that we did about 850 million room nights booked in 2019. So it gives you kind of flavor of the the size of the business that you know well. And literally that shut off, uh, the spigot dried. And as you say, it went negative. Um, long story about what, what, what we did, uh, we tried not to overreact because nobody knew exactly what was going on. Um, we did a lot of work with our customers and partners. That was our, our, our primary focus to make sure that um, we could help people out as they were trying to book and rebook and change things and get paid or not get paid in certain cases, of course, uh, looked after our employees very carefully. We didn't do anything with our employee population for months after the start of the crisis in terms of the right sizing or downsizing because we wanted to know um, where things might develop and not go too quickly in, in that area. So a ton of action. And in fact, you know, we joked internally that the amount of work was inversely proportional to the amount of bookings. So we have 15% of the bookings or less and we have six times the amount of work. A uh, number of people didn't change. The amount of work went up because of what? Uh, because of the amount of turmoil, uh, customers were booking, uh, rebooking. Hotel partners didn't know where they could open, where they could take bookings. Uh, there was a ton of money moving around in the system, uh, pre-paid pre bookings, what rebates were, were due. 
um, and just incredible amount of chaos thrown into the entire system, um, which is designed to work one way and all of a sudden have to turn around and work in exactly the opposite way. So you can imagine the amount of turmoil um, in, in a business that's kind of designed to operate to take bookings that now has to operate to cancel and rebook bookings and try and keep everybody whole and make sure the partners aren't too unhappy, the customers aren't too unhappy, um, a incredible amount of activity around the, uh, I mean, our customer service volume is up about 600% um, to give you a data point, just to kind of put it into context, again, inversely proportional to the amount of bookings. So the customer service calls went up 6X, incredible. And how did you, what was your approach as a leader of your finance team? What did you talk about with your team? How did you keep them motivated and focused during this just incredibly stressful time? Yeah, we um, we try to compartmentalize things, um, try to give people a roadmap as to how we would kind of think about going through this. We didn't know what was going to happen, but we said, look, we're, we have to get the business stabilized. We're in a, stab a stabilization phase right now. And don't worry about anything beyond stabilization. Later, we'll come into um, you know, calibration where we think the business is going to be sized coming out of this. And then we can decide how we want to go and adjust our resources and our finances and the whole company to kind of work into the new uh, normality. But it's really a question of trying to provide um, phases for people to understand how we will get through this and a massive amount of communication, over communicates. Uh, don't assume people have heard things the first time, tell them it five times and want to hear you, hear the sixth time and, and they get bored of you talking about it. Then it's time to move on to the next topic. Just incredible amount of communication and trying to put things into a logical bite-sized chunk so people knew where we were and at least they knew that we thought we had the next step beyond the current step. Very good. Well, we'll we can come back to this, uh, the, the beginning of COVID and booking in our Q&A a little later if, if the uh, audience is interested. Let's go back and talk about your career. You grew up in Manchester, England. You were an avid tennis player. And was there a time when you thought you might become a professional tennis player instead of a chief financial officer of a major company? How, how, how ambitious were you in tennis? I don't think I was ever quite that good. Maybe in my little childhood, maybe, maybe in, in, in my childhood dreams, I thought I could do it one day. But at the end of the day, I think uh, you look at the talent that it takes to achieve in that sport and it's incredible. So I enjoyed playing tennis. It was a good thing for me, uh, for school, for college, socially. Um, but I certainly kept my eye on the academics and uh, was lucky enough to do math and physics at school. And obviously that gave me a good foundation for handling numbers, et cetera. So um, tennis, I still play now, but um, nowhere near that level. So focused on math and physics. And how did you then start your business career when you got out of uh, university? It was a little fortuitous. Um, in the English education system, as you probably know, you get uh, um, encouraged to specialize very early uh, through the O-levels, the A-levels, uh, the academics there. So by the time you're 14 and you're doing your O-levels, you've really chosen whether you're into uh, art or science, you're down to basically a handful full four subjects. By the time you're in uh, your A-levels from 16 to 18, you're down to three subjects, so maths, physics, and chemistry, in, in my case, and then you go down to one subject to go to university. So um, physics was my strong spot, so I went to university to study physics, and of course, enjoyed playing some, some tennis along the way. Um, I knew that physics wasn't for me long-term, but I really didn't have a strong view on what I wanted to do on the fact I needed to get some commercial experience. So um, I was recruited um, through a university recruitment program uh, back in then to a technology company called Burroughs Machines that later became part of Unisys. 
Um, and I started out in uh, sales and marketing of all things uh, on the client on the client facing side of things, and did that for for a number of years in uh, the UK. So you started off in sales and marketing. It's a big change from sales and marketing to finance and becoming a CFO. How did that change happen? Yeah, there were quite a few steps along the way there, Jeff. Um, I was fortunate enough to get sponsored through an executive MBA program in the UK at Cranfield University um, before I left the, the UK. That opened my horizon substantially to the broader business world. Um, I also recognized that there wasn't much of a computer industry left in Europe. And if I wanted to progress my career in technology, I needed to be somewhere where technology was happening. So that led me to uh, move over to, to the States uh, within, within Unisys. Um, I spent a number of years in a strategy um, with, uh, with the Unisys, uh, left there and went to a now defunct company called Wang, but a very well-known company in the Boston area called Wang, Wang Labs, uh, was very much involved in uh, corporate development, M&A, um, acquisitions, integration, uh, went there. There's a long story because it's been a few years. Uh, from there, went to uh, EMC, a much better known tech company in the Boston area as uh, EVP of marketing. Um, ran marketing, ran corporate development, uh, was involved in buying a little company then called VMware that was very successful, and a number of other companies and integrations. And along the way, um, got the opportunity. My first job in finance uh, was actually as CFO. So I became a CFO, CFO of EMC in 2006. My first role ever in finance, but of course I touched so many elements of the financial equation through all the corp dev work, the M&A, the integration, even bankruptcy <laughs> procedures at Wang were good, good introductions to the financial world. So your first CFO, your first, the first time you worked in a CFO's department was when you became a CFO at, at EMC, which is quite an unusual uh, situation as opposed to working your way up yeah, through the financial ranks. Uh, tell us about uh, that motivation. What, what were you thinking uh, in terms of the, you could have had a career in marketing or continued in sales or CFO. How do you think about which direction to take and why did you take that? Oh, I thought that was the perfect move for me. I was very lucky to have a, a, a strong mentor, a mentor, uh, Joe Tucci, who then was the CEO of, of, of EMC. And um, he was doing me a great favor at the time by broadening my career. Um, I mean, I'd done everything around finance, but I hadn't run finance. So I think from the CFO's see you have an incredible perspective on on the business you I mean everything relates back to numbers so essentially you have a license to go do whatever you want to do in, in any part of the business that ties back to the to to the numbers uh, and uh, certainly helping uh, shape strategy drive strategy improve operational performance that seat is just incredibly powerful um, and very important and so yes it's a very atypical progression into the CFO realm um, but I loved it and uh, was CFO EMC um, right through 2014, when I eventually hired my, my replacement, um, and was very keen to get back into a CFO role when the opportunity arose about uh, three and a half, four years ago at uh, Booking Holdings. That's terrific. Let's talk a little bit more about EMC. When you first arrived, there was some turmoil there. Uh, you were working for Joe Tucci, and as you said, you had a long relationship with him, which is, uh, he's got a legend, had a legendary career. Do you remember thinking back to 2006 at, at EMC, did you do an assessment and try to figure out what's going on in the finance department and you'd have to make a lot of changes or did you pretty much uh, inherit a well-functioning organization? Um, 
there were parts of the company, parts of finance were doing a great job. Uh, finance, like a lot of companies in those days, was a little um, perhaps more focused upon the accounting and reporting than it was on the operational integration side of things and the business partnering. Um, and the area that I, because given my background in generally the business, because um, I run marketing, I run sales, I run technology, I run integration, run almost every part of the company apart from finance. Uh, my integration, my, my knowledge of the business and how it operated was really what we're looking to try and leverage to bring the two closer together. Um, so it was a great department, some really good people. Um, and uh, we were able to strengthen more on the business partnering side, uh, commercial finance side, um, and really help integrate finance back into the fabric of the business and lead the planning process, um, use it as the place where we actually um, led the companies. I wouldn't say strategic plan, but certainly the company's longer term strategic financial thinking and how we tie that back to the business. So the operational objectives inside the company tied together, uh, clear targets that tie to operational goals um, and made it um, essentially the kind of the backbone of the company from a financial operations and then tying out the business execution side of, of the house. So uh, it was a great, great team, but the area where it needed the work was to bring say the finance and business part closer to together with finance, really taking the lead to make sure that the company was operating against its strategic goals. So you're talking about the importance of the business partnering role of the CFO's team. Was that done through the financial planning and analysis department, or did you have a different group of people called business or were they called business partners? What was the what was the organizational structure that you used to make that happen? Yeah, we certainly um, built up FPNA within within my team, um, uh, within my direct team, and uh, we had um, business controllers sitting in each of the functions um, that reported back to me as well. So through uh, basically FPNA being the, the tip of the spear, so to speak, um, is where we built um, most of that expertise and extra executional skills. You know, we also brought investor relations and FPNA much more closely together as well because there'd been a, you know, a little bit of a translation issue sometimes between those worlds. You know, they operate in similar spheres, but not exactly the same. So we worked on, on, on that, um, and uh, yes, uh, certainly made that the kind of the, the kind of nerve center of, of the company and used that for really driving the cadence of the business, the operational reviews, the planning process, etc. We kind of took control over all those things. And you're saying so it was it was both the FPNA people, but then also the, the, the business, I guess your title was controller, people who were the controller of the business, they would work closely with the general manager or CEOs of each of the businesses and, and do the business partnering as well. So, so you had sort of two levels, the, the, the business controller as well as the FPNA people. Exactly. Exactly. And did you, some companies have sort of dotted line one way and solid line the other way? Is that something that you thought about, which is the controller? solid line to the CEO and dotted line to you or vice versa, or does it matter? Um, in practice, I don't think it matters. Um, it's more um, form over substance. Uh, but in that case, we did have uh, the hard line into finance for the, uh, fiduciary, for, for the fiduciary responsibility. But there was a, uh, it was from our point of view, it was kind of a dual reporting structure. Um, I certainly want the business owners to feel um, complete responsibility for their controllership, their piece of finance, and I believe it's a, a function they're leaning on that's managed by somebody else. So um, I, I don't think it mattered that much, but uh, we had a dual reporting system, but the hard line was technically into finance. Yeah. 
And then during that time at EMC, you merged with Dell, $45 billion merger, which lasted several years. That must have been just an extraordinary experience for you and your team, and uh, obviously a, a big move for the company. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, that was an incredible, basically a three year period of time that really ended up through 2017. So in, in 2014, I became the CEO of the main EMC operating company. We still had, had a holding company structure. Uh, we had VMware and Pivotal, but basically um, EMC was the main operating company. I was the CEO of that business and I had recruited uh, my successor, um, Zane Rowe, who's now the C CFO at uh, VMware. Um, and we had been doing work on industry studies and where things were going and uh, had concluded basically that EMC was, it was, was, installed, was a fantastic te technology company and obviously had got a very strong footprint in the data center uh, storage industry, broad storage, storage back recovery, et cetera. Um, technology was reconverging, um, converged infrastructure was becoming a big thing and to be a great uh, technology company in this day and age without having a server was going to be a challenge. So we recognized that, that we needed to um, find the right place for the company, either you know, buy a big server business ourselves or merge with somebody who had a big server footprint. Um, and that led to a partnership, which was actually a decade or so old with uh, Dell, um, turning into something more strategic than that. So we basically went through a, a three-year process um, putting the merger together with Dell and Dell technically, of course, acquired uh, EMC. Um, we announced that around uh, September 2015. Uh, so there was a year of putting the deal together. These things take a lot of putting together and uh, structuring and approval. It took us another year to uh, get the deal closed. From the, so from the time that we announced in uh, called September 15th, so we closed in uh, September 2016, um, we had to operate the company under interim operating under inter under interim operating covenants for basically a year, so we could put the merger together. Um, I was very much in, in the in the hot seat there because I was running the operating company, um, which is the piece that they really wanted to bring into to to Dell. Then I spent about a year plus after helping with the integration. So uh, three very uh, interesting years with different phases. Again, there was a deal phase, there was a there was a run the company and then close it phase, and there was a, an integration phase. Um, I think if you look at the company now, combined would be deemed as very successful three three years, but uh, a lot of moving parts. There were 45,000 people in the EMC operating company that I was responsible for uh, who had uh, 45,000 questions about what was gonna happen to their future. Um, so a lot of communication, a lot of going out and talking to people, customers, partners. Um, it's a huge amount of work. I viewed it as kind of almost having two or three jobs on top of my day job actually running the business. Well, during that time, you were also uh, on the board of directors of VMware, where uh, you had a, a large investment. Uh, can you share with our, our audience how you think about your role as a board member as opposed to your role as a CFO or CEO? You've had all these different roles and they have different requirements. Yes, it's very interesting because it's great to sit on the other side. I was actually a, uh, uh, on the board of uh, VMware um, from the time we took VMware public in 2007, I actually ran that process uh, with the VMware team, but I was kind of leading it from the EMC side because we were the ones taking 20% uh, of VMware public at the time. So at that point in time, we, we, we had a more formal uh, public company board structure. I was on the board of VMware from 2007 right through to 2014. Um, and this is a different role. As a board member, um, 
there's a reason why there's a board and why there's a management team. They have different roles and uh, boards need to be um, strategic. They need to be advisors. Um, it's it's a bad day when a board starts, running the, starts trying to run the company um, and you know, board members with operational uh, backgrounds sometimes can have that bias and it's, and it's important not to. Uh, but it's also important to actually go spend time with the company, learning and sitting down with the product teams, the finance people, the marketing people to understand the company so you can be a good advisor but um it is very different because uh, it's funny because we used to have a lot of companies a lot of business units inside of emc we had a, a business unit for uh for uh, for for backup for for example from an acquisition called data domain that we did and that was a business unit that was wholly owned um we kind of ran that we tried to use that structure a little similar we had a an, an operating board for that business unit for example and give the management team of that unit autonomy so we certainly learned from the public company board structure, how to take some of that capabilities and uh, run our internal uh, business units as well. But formally as a board member, yeah, it's it's different. Uh, it's importantly different. And I think it's important that everybody recognizes that there are, those roles have uh, their own responsibilities and important not to cross the line both ways. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Well, let's, uh, let's bring it back to booking then. So uh, after uh, all these years at, at uh, Dell and EMC and, and VMware, uh, you were recruited to join Booking as the chief financial officer, one of the largest travel companies. You, you were there for a while before the COVID crisis. Uh, when COVID hit, uh, I think Booking publicly announced that you laid off 25% of your headcount, if I remember that correctly. So obviously just enormous difficult decisions you had to, you had to make. Initially, you said your customer support volume grew 6x. But then I, because people weren't booking hotels and people weren't traveling, I assume the volume at some point came way down and just didn't need all these customer support people. Can you walk us through over the last two years what, what you've been doing at booking in terms of uh, the, the actions you took early in the crisis to control your costs? And then uh, as, the, as the volume of travel has come back, how you're rebuilding the business? Sure. Um, so it's been, a, again, another fascinating short period of time. It's amazing. It's only a couple of years. It feels like a couple of decades in terms of the amount of uh, work we've all had to do in different parts of different industries around COVID. So as we said, when things hit, it was a question of stabilized, um, stabilized the workforce. Um, we, we didn't take any actions until later in, in the year. I'll come back to that in just a second. Um, uh, stabilize our, our finances. We can run that wrong runway exercise and decided that we were probably okay, but we, we went out and quickly raised an additional $4 billion in capital in April of uh, 2020 at uh, then pretty attractive uh, rates, but kind of really made sure we had a rock solid financial uh, basis. Um, we talked about some of the work we did with customers and partners, um, and we waited to see what we could see a little bit before we took action with our workforce. We didn't want to cut too, too deep, and 20% um, you know, was kind of an average number, uh, obviously, in certain departments, that was a little bit more than that, but uh, it was more like an average of 20% across the company. Um, and what we recognize is by the time we got into the summer phase and we we're starting to see some level of stabilization um, and some level of, of, of recovery, um, we had to be careful to preserve our long-term investments. We didn't want to cut back in the technology and payments and things like that that were important to the future. The only places we did cut were in those more volume-related functions. So you're right. Jeff, uh, you know, at some point in time, customer service uh, calls stabilized because cancellations that all happened and people had rebooked and we're down to just a bare minimum of business running on tickover. Um, you know, things like recruiting was down, um, you know, credit and collection was down because a lot of properties were closed. And we were thoughtful 
uh, and we did have to make some uh, reduction in workforce. It's very painful for any company. Uh, for our company, it's the first time they, they ever had to do that, so it makes it even harder, as it was a company that was uh, used to a solid growth rate and certainly was not a serial restructurer. Um, so very careful, had to do it uh, in Europe, of all places, with works councils involved, that makes things even harder. Um, so at our biggest brand, Booking.com, we didn't actually execute reductions until uh, the fourth quarter, slash the first quarter, 21. Um, and we did it with care, and uh, we did it to make sure we preserved the core capabilities of, of the business. Now, you know, roll forward. Um, uh, February just finished. Um, uh, bookings, at least room nights, are back to where they were in 2019 across the month on, on average. Um, small pullback in early March because of a uh, horrible situation going on in uh, Ukraine, but um, all the way back to where we were, which is essentially pretty big recovery, fast recovery, less than two years. Now, it's not all the same bookings, obviously international down, in the international bookings are more important for us generally, uh, usually higher um, ADRs, uh, average daily rates on 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 on, on accommodation, larger trip values, longer stays, etc. So it's not completely back to where it was, but it's certainly come a long way back again. Um, the focus has really been for the last couple of years beyond the stabilization, stabilized renewal and growth with the kind of three publicly facing um, phases that I mentioned. The renewal, of course, included that reduction and some of the other things, but also making sure we still had our key uh, bets on the future in place. Then growth is kind of leveraging that into the future because. Ultimately, um, we believe that with the industry being shocked in the way that it really was, very few chances to get have an industry taken down to almost zero and then re rebuilt again quickly. We really do that view that as an opportunity to um, further our share, to really come out as a bigger, stronger, more competitive, um, more attractive for our customers and partners player than we were before. And essentially, that's what the focus has been. Um, whilst managing through all the elements of the crisis, um, how can we use this to really accelerate our market position and uh, not take our eye off the ball of, of the things that we thought were important before the crisis and we still think are important in terms of just building a better travel solution than people have today? And, the, and when you're in a crisis, of course, you're making decisions with incomplete information and a lot of time pressure and you'll get some things right and some things you wish you could have over again. As you think, since now two years have passed and things are beginning to get more stabilized, when you look back at lessons learned from the crisis, uh, what are one or two things that stand out in your mind as things that uh, you now know you know now, which, which maybe you, you'd like to remember for next time, or advice for people in the audience the next time they're in a crisis? Yeah, I think you mentioned one. Um, you got to act on in, on imperfect data. Uh, there are times at which you just need to make decisions. Sometimes you may have very little data, but you've got to make a decision and move forward because not making one is bad for the, for the company. And I think we were generally pretty quick, but there are some times that we perhaps analyzed a little bit more um, than I think we maybe could have done if we had perfect science again. I don't think we made any bad decisions. It's just that some of them could have happened a little faster. Um, and then related to that, I think we've also figured out that it's okay, apart from the most important decisions, it's okay to kind of make take the medium-sized ones and appoint a team who's accountable for making that decision, um, as opposed to having everything come back to the to the top of the company. Because if not, things get really you wind up with a lot of things on your plate at, at any point in time. I think we've found through through that, also through acting very rapidly uh, to respond to uh, Russia Ukraine, for example, more recently that there are decisions that you can basically break up and hand to a team of people and say, 
you are in charge, you are accountable. And only if you feel uncomfortable, then come back to us uh, for input on that decision. So you're talking about Russia and Ukraine, obviously it's in, in the news and the tragedy happening there. There's a lot of pressure on global companies to say, we're not gonna do business in Russia. Uh, I haven't seen, you may have made an announcement, I haven't seen it. How, what's going on in terms of what you can say publicly about Booking's approach to the whole Russia-Ukraine situation? Yeah, I mean, Jeff, as, as you say, it's beyond terrible um, and hard to imagine that's happening in this day and age. But um, relative to what we're doing, we're doing a number of things. Um, we, relative to, 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 to Russia, we have suspended uh, selling travel services in, uh, in Russia. So um, there is no availability on any of our sites for booking anything within, within Russia. Uh, we made that decision, uh, announced that a couple of weeks ago. We didn't make a big thing about it, but you know, we're uh, there with, with a number of companies that decided not to operate with, within Russia. Um, we are um, not charging our partners in uh, Ukraine right now, including for bookings that happened in February. The last thing that they want to get is an invoice from Booking Holdings right now saying that yours <laughs> on travel services. And uh, we're doing work on the uh, humanitarian side with the, with the Red Cross as well to try and provide support to uh, Ukraine. Um, but relative to Russia, uh, you know, we have basically stopped travel services in that country. And Booking, I assume, has employees in both countries. And what's going on with the employees? Yes, um, a number of employees in uh, Ukraine where we can. Uh, get them and their immediate families out, we have. But as you're probably aware, if you're a male in a certain age, 18 to 62, you can't leave, leave the country. So we've been in contact with all of our employees uh, and looked at them and their direct families, the ones that we can, that we could take out. We've taken them out. We've, we've helped them get out. Uh, we have a number of uh, who, who, who left who are uh, not in that category. Um, Russia so far, no change to our employees. We do have employees there. Uh, they are. Um, they know what, what what we're doing. We fully support them. We're supporting them, making sure we have cash over there to pay them, etc. Um, but no actions relative to our employees other than in Russia, other than you know, keeping very much informed in terms of what we're doing and why we're doing it, and uh, what we need them to do going forward. Okay. Uh, people are beginning to put questions in the chat, uh, so please uh, continue to do that. We have a question from Matthew Helmers who's interested in Booking's different brands. Uh, Booking for many years bought a number of companies like OpenTable and Kayak and, and Agoda and others and had them operate separately. Now they're operating a little bit more closely together. Uh, could you give an overview of the brands within the Booking Holdings umbrella and how do you see, what, what, which, which brands are you focused on in terms of the growth opportunity? Yeah, great question, thank you. Um, so yes, um, we have a number of brands. Uh, obviously, Booking.com is the largest brand, but very much European-based, but of course, a global business. Um, we have Priceline, which is the original uh, brand of the company. It used to be called the Priceline Group before it was Booking Holdings, uh, more of a US-focused uh, travel agent. Um, an Asian uh, online travel agent called Agoda, which again was an acquisition done a, a few years ago. Uh, and we have uh, Kayak and OpenTable as well. Um, so. Um, some of those brands are operating very similar spaces. So essentially booking.com, Priceline and Agoda are all uh, online travel agents. They have slightly different geographic focus. So obviously we're booking, having principally um, a European base, but, but being, being global, uh, Priceline is very, very much US based and Agoda is very Asian based. So we try and position the brands in a complementary basis. 
I say in both cases, um, Priceline and, and Agoda are more focused upon the local marketplace, slightly more price conscious, short-term traveling needs, whereas Booking.com is more of a, of a general uh, brand uh, uh, aimed at more family vacations, a little higher positioned in terms of the, uh, the, the price points of properties offered, although they are very similar. Um, and of course, Kayak is offering in a different space because that's in that's a, an online search engine, so no real kind of competition there. And of course, open tables handling dining. So you've got a, a, a portfolio. Um, Matt was right that historically the companies have been run very separately, and uh, we do want to have a more as many shop fronts as possible. Having multiple shop fronts is basically a good thing because you can attract different customers with different loyalty profiles, etc. For example, you know, Asia very very price uh, price conscious, and uh, Agoda plays very well against the local. Uh, Asian competitors there, people like C-Trip and Traveloka. Um, but we're doing more to align the brands, both on the front end. We actually have now a much more coordinated strategy in markets, so a little bit less uh, tripping over each other in, in the marketplace and more proactive positioning to go after slightly diff different segments. Uh, we're also doing more sharing across the, the brands, in terms of sharing inventory, sharing loyalty programs, uh, sharing people. Uh, so over the course of the last few years, we've definitely gone from a uh, a portfolio of brands to more looking at it as a company uh, where we can, can create value by sharing uh, practices, processes, etc. We're starting to implement some common systems across the brands, but we are uh, thoughtful about where when we do that because we don't want to kind of basically lose that entrepreneurialism of, of, of the brand, but we do want to leverage uh, shared capabilities wherever we can. Uh, David, as you know, I served on the board of directors of Booking Holdings for 16 years, and for most of the time that I was there, and we had these six big brands, which were run virtually completely independently. We often they were run by their founders and entrepreneurs, continuing to run. We we helped with capital allocation at the at, at the corporate level, and we encouraged people to cooperate, but we didn't mandate, and we didn't, and we had and people had separate finance teams, separate even separate technology stacks and things like that. In contrast, uh, Oracle, where I was the CFO, had virtually everything completely centralized. And so I had personal experience with extreme decentralization of booking, extreme centralization at, at Oracle. It sounds like booking is moving more toward the middle on that. At EMC, you might have had a different structure. Just generally, what's your philosophy about to, if, if you were advising other CFOs of how to think about the optimal amount of centralization or decentralization? Do you have a, a framework that you think about? Yeah, I think you have to start, start with the business to work back. Um, so you know, EMC was very centralized apart from VMware, right? VMware was a company that, that, that we acquired. They're in a different space. So we didn't try and centralize them. Yet other parts of EMC, as we bought them in, we centralized them very heavily. Um, so you can have two strategies playing within one company. Um, I don't think there's a single answer. I've seen it work well both ways, Jeff, as... as as, as you mentioned, I think complete decentralization isn't the right answer because what's the point of being a, what's the point of being a, a, a company if you're so decentralized that you're not sharing and leveraging assets. So I think one end can be too far. And I think you know booking holdings was close to that end in terms of just you know let people go do exactly what they want to do and don't try and share, even maybe sometimes potentially compete. Um, which again is something that can that can can work. So I think there's there's always a balance. Um, you're right, we're moving towards the middle, but still very much more on the decentralized side. I think you've probably heard from the way I answered the, the question and my comments that we are looking at bringing in common systems, for example, in, in areas where 
we don't have a system or we're putting in a new system, um, things like intercompany accounting or contract management, we're not letting people go buy five different flavors of that, which is what would have happened before. We say, no, we're picking one and we're going to put that layer in consistently across all businesses. Uh, but we're doing it selectively. We're not kind of saying, you know, every system, every, every part of the tech stack, every part of the fan stack has to be central. We're doing it selectively where we think we can add value and not disrupt the value in those businesses. Very good. We have a question from uh, Nilesh Patel about payments. Booking.com for many years was an agency model, not a merchant model. So for the people in the audience, if you book something on booking.com, you would pay the hotel and then booking would send the hotel a bill for its commission. Uh, so booking didn't actually take the payment, but now uh, the, the booking is uh, building up a big important payments business and you can pay booking directly. Uh, David, can you talk about strategically how, how you think about the payments business within booking.com within booking holdings? What, what was the effort it took to, to build it in a hundred plus countries? And how do you think about payments as part of the strategy? Yeah, uh, Jeff, great, great question. And uh, yes, as, as you said, booking.com had this beautifully simple agency model where we didn't touch money. It was fantastic. Um, you could scale rapidly into a country because all you needed was a local bank account and some partner services people. Not only did we send the customer the, the partner the, the, the bill, but you know, in, in some cases, they would let us direct debit our commission from, from their accounts because it was simple for them to administer. Um, and then the customers handling payments at the desk with the partner. Now, that's a great model if all you want to do is be in accommodations and you don't really want to be a merchant per se, you want to be a booking agent. Um, two things are happening in our industry and they're both very connected. One is that the, the intermediary, i.e. us, is playing uh, much more of a role as a merchandiser, uh, participating in pricing and, and, uh, and um, potentially couponing. Um, with our payment system, we now have a wallet, so all our all of our customers can basically get credit in their wallet over time. They'll be able to put money in there as well as we, as we expand the scope of payments. So payments is, is very important for merchandising. Also payments as a, as a company, we take friction out, out of the system. So we can now um, enable um, customers in multiple different places to pay and to go and visit hotels in other places that may not have their currency. So for example, if you are in, in, in China and you're booking a hotel in France, you may want to pay in Alipay. Well, guess what? That hotel in, in uh, France is probably not going to take Alipay. They probably want Visa or MasterCard. We can translate that form as well. And of course, we can handle any of the friction around customer service around the payment process. So it actually becomes a, it, we, we, we spend the whole time on this topic. It becomes a facilitator for conversion on booking. It takes friction out from, from the partner. Um, and of course, over time, it's something that we can potentially uh, monetize as well because we're processing tens and tens of millions of, of dollars of uh, annual value. The last part of it, which I'll mention, is it's just underpinning our longer-term strategy. Our longer-term strategy is to not just be a leader in accommodations, but to create this better travel experience called the Connected Trip, where you basically buy multiple things from us um, at, at the same time, or more importantly, for the same trip. So you maybe want to book a, a airfare, ground transportation, book your local attractions, um, add-on insurance, and payments underpins all those. You can pay in one place, we'll pay out to the uh, suppliers, and again, at that point in time, you can use that wallet for actual um, you know, customer payments of money, not just credits and things that we do for it right now. Um, so it's a very strategic part of the business. It's been a big build out. We started in, uh, uh, we started perhaps in 2016, 2017, but really 2018, you started to uh, see it working. We had to build a payment system that was agnostic to the underlying 
um, vertical. So the company's very first uh, attempt at building payments uh, was very tightly tied to the accommodation business. That isn't going to work for long term. So we had to build out a new a scalable payments platform, uh, modern architecture, API based, etc., that can support multiple verticals, um, which is what we're rolling out now. About a third of the bookings at booking.com now go through payments. And of course, it is, as you said, Jeff, a very sophisticated business operating in you know dozens of countries around the world. You know, pay in in multiple countries, pay out in, in multiple countries, multiple currencies, um, and adds a lot of um, excitement to the, to the business. <laughs> um in terms of controls and systems because now you're, you're touching you know tens of billions of dollars of customer money not just touching your own commissions um so it's been an, it, it is an interesting journey but it's a very important part of the business we announced in booking.com which is the place we have the biggest change um, a fintech business unit last year you know broke that out into a fintech unit to attract talent raise, raise visibility because of course there are all sorts of financial systems types products that we can build on top of a great payments platform in the future. The moment we just focus on building out the platform. Very exciting. Um, awesome. I'm just going to jump in really quick. We still have about 15 minutes. And thanks, everybody, for the really awesome questions. Please do submit them. We'll get to uh, as many as we can um, after my little spiel here. But uh, I just wanted to um, uh, give everyone uh, some information. We are Airbase. We are a spend management platform. So we help finance teams at small uh, at smaller companies and fast growing companies um, to do more with less. So we can combine your corporate card program with your bill payments program and your expense reimbursements all in one place, make it really visible and much easier for uh, finance teams to deal with. So I'm popping up a poll. If you'd like to learn more, uh, go ahead and tell us. If not, no worries. Um, we're going to go back to the audience questions. So please do keep submitting them. They're great. So back to you, Jeff. Okay, we have a question from Jung Sun Park. Uh, he is a licensed CPA and a staff accountant, and he asks, how can I become a CFO? And secondly, do you have any books about being a CFO that you can recommend? Okay, um, well, being a CPA is a great foundation for being a CFO. Not necessary these days, and I'm one of a number of people I know who is a CFO who's not a CPA. Uh, but it's a great foundation uh, to to have uh, from that. Um, I don't know where it is you're working right right now, but um, uh, it's important to uh, gain good experience in the finance world. Uh, one of the challenges that I think from people who are uh, on the more technical side of the accounting world is they can get kind of pigeonholed there as well. So my advice would be that if you get the opportunity to rotate through a tax position, FP&A, as well as controllership and, and accounting, those are all building blocks, because essentially uh, CFO has to be able to stand on those different pillars, whether it be um, controllership, accounting, tax, FP&A, treasury, et cetera, and really help those functions succeed individually and together and help to connect um, those functions back into the business again. So uh, my advice would be to try and get as much variety as you possibly can on top of your strong foundation, because that will give you a foundation to move upwards. Um, you know, honestly, Jeff, I'm going to turn back to you. I'm not sure. Uh, perhaps either you or Laura may, may be better places for a book to uh, to 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 read about uh, becoming a successful CFO. Well, I, I've been looking. I'm I teach a new class at the Stanford Graduate School of Business on Chief Financial Officer Leadership. So I've been looking for books. It turns out there's dozens of them, but none of them really are the kinds of thing that uh, that I, I would have wanted. Uh, what I do like is general business books. I love business autobiographies. And I've been a huge fan of Warren Buffett in terms of understanding capital allocation. Yeah. Uh, and so I highly recommend a book called The Snowball 
which is a biography of Warren Buffett. Uh, it's a great story. And uh, of course, his investing career is, is legendary and, and extraordinary. There's also a very interesting book called The Outsiders about eight CEOs and how they built their per share uh, earnings over time, at very high rates, mostly through not only being great operators, but being great capital allocators. Uh, and these are many of these companies you might not have heard of, but over the course of 20 years, these companies dramatically outperformed the S&P 500. Uh, you were talking before about your relationship with Joe Tucci. You worked together for over 25 years, and many people on this call would love to have a relationship with, with someone as extraordinary as that. Uh, can you just talk about how, how your relationship began? It was it something that you sought out? Was it something that just happened? Was it luck? And uh, what, what are your thoughts about how if I'm early in my career, how do I, how do I get a relationship like that with a senior talented executive? Yeah, I think all, all these things wind up being a little bit of luck and a little bit of uh, good judgments. And uh, I was fortunate soon after I went over to the US, I mentioned I was with uh, Unisys back in those days. Um, Joe was the president of um, uh, Unisys US field operations, everything kind of sales and customer facing, sales service customer facing. And uh, I worked on an assignment with him because I was in the corporate strategy group. Uh, and we got on well together and we kind of did a big strategy project and presented it to uh, the board, um, got approval. And obviously Joe was doing the presentation, I was there supporting him, but uh, we had a good uh, good relationship and a good partnership around our project. And then I um, asked if I could go over and, well, I didn't ask, I, I, I was kind of commandeered to go to work more directly with Joe and focus on, on that US business operation. Um, so I kind of wound up working on his team. Um, so it was a good, confluence of activities and we basically worked together for 25 years after there at uh, Unisys for a little while we both went to Wang for a while we're both at, at, at EMC um, you know Joe left uh, EMC after the uh, Dell merge he basically retired at that point in time and I stayed on a little longer with, 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 with Dell but we stay in we stay in touch which is very important to uh, uh, try and get together whenever we can um, so I would really think it's important particularly for people who are kind of I was fortunate to be fairly well positioned in my career by the time I was in my early 30s, but really having a mentor at that point in time, somebody who is um, uh, you know, that much higher in the, the org structure who can kind of help me show show me the ropes and some of the leadership skills and things was super important. So um, I don't think there's a magic answer here as well, but it, people who are ambitious, who are looking to get themselves into a senior role, um, having somebody, I mean, in, in, in many cases, it, it, it's having a number of people, right? People talk about having a personal board of directors, so I think that's good as well. But um, if you can find somebody um, who's prepared to spend time with you, uh, who you have a good relationship with, then go build that because those things are special and they don't happen very often. When you uh, were working with Joe, with, can you think of a time where <clears throat> he was making an important decision? He asked for your advice and, <clears throat> and you had, <clears throat> excuse me, different points of view. And he said A and you said B and you talked it out and ended up perhaps with uh, with a different decision that he would have made on his own. Um, it's kind of interesting because we we used to joke that we would we would um, usually not argue on the decision. We would uh, go about figuring out the decision in very different ways, which is complementary. Um, so I would go away and get a whole bunch of data and go figure it all out you know, and kind of work up what the what, what what the right numbers were. And Joe would do it by going talking to a bunch of people, a um, little bit more intuitive. Um, but we usually wind up at the same place. 
um, which is interesting because it was very com com complimentary. I say there were a couple of situations where you know, we had some difficult, difficult conversations with our board of directors. We had to go do that together. But you know, usually, um, I would say that we came out in the same place. But again, back to this kind of mentorship, you want to find somebody who's got a different skill set than yours. To have, to, to, to have a mentor with the same skill set is not going to broaden you as much as having somebody who came at things through a very different way. And that was the, I think, one of the unique uh, strengths of the partnership that Joe and I had and have. Well, there was a time, I believe, when you were selling EMC where that was controversial. Some people wanted to sell the company. Some people didn't want to sell the company. What were those conversations like? And how did, what, what kind of part did you play in that? Yeah, I think um, making the, the decision to merge with, with, with Dell or basically to sell to Dell, which is what it became, um, obviously, those are very difficult choices for board of directors to make, and uh, particularly when you have people on the board who were associated with founding the company, and it's just a very natural situation. Um, a very difficult, very difficult decision to make. Um, one that I think we we all made with eyes open, uh, but you've got to really be able to step back and present the alternatives in a very dispassionate way. Cal, look at the facts and alternatives and make recommendations. So um, there was always a recommendation to kind of continue going the way we wanted to go by ourselves and you know, maybe do something else in terms of adding that server capability, which I mentioned. There are other ways of, of doing that, partnering, potentially um, acquiring. Um, so those are difficult conversations. I'm, not, I'm obviously not going to go in, into details of boardroom discussions, but you can imagine that anything of that size um, is well thought through. And it's good to have people um, arguing different perspectives. So not everybody on the first meeting would share the same perspective. The objective of a good leadership team, and I think a good board of directors, is to eventually come together. And you have to go through a process to uh, do that. And again, it has to be done by presenting the, the data, the facts, the alternatives, and giving people chance and time to kind of think about, it, express their, their viewpoints, a lot of conversations amongst different subgroups, but then move the process forward. So I think that was the big learning. Uh, I would be amazed if any uh, you know, corporate transaction of that size, if anybody went to the board on the first meeting and everybody said, yes, let's do it. <laughs> I don't think it happens that way. That's right. Well, if you think about the finance technology stack, uh, booking for the most part, I'm sure works with large companies like Oracle and SAP to buy software technology from them. How do you think about working with an early stage uh, financial technology company, uh, you're so large, they're relatively small, but they might have uh, a great product that uh, can do something that other products can't do. How do you think about, uh, how do you get that innovation in the company while working with smaller suppliers? I think we're actually, for, for what you call a large company, we're, we're quite open to um, more cutting edge technology. Um, we're not a traditional um, IT enterprise stack uh, we're we're an e-commerce platform we're we're a web services platform so um we're probably writing more things ourselves than most tech companies would do uh we're certainly experimenting with public cloud and private cloud in different areas um i think compared to other companies that i've seen we're much more open than many at uh, introducing uh, technology from small companies that we think can scale Again, we have to remember we're, we're operating this thing at massive scale, so we need something that can, can work with us. But whether it be um, um, whether it be uh, the cyber world, whether it be uh, app dev tools, 
uh, productivity tools. I think we've always been, the, the, uh, the company Booking Holdings has always been uh, more on the leading edge of using some of those things and not just relying upon the kind of household standards. Right. Well, we like to end each, uh, each conversation with the same two questions. Uh, and the first one, it talks about advice that people have given you over your career. What, what's, as you think back on your career, what's the best advice anyone has given you? Yeah, Jeff, it wouldn't be a career advice, but it would be an advice I took into my career. So um, growing up, I had a, a, an uncle who was an exceptionally good chess player. Didn't roll down to me. I didn't play chess very much. I played a little bit, but he was an exceptionally good, good chess player. Um, and he would teach me to uh, play chess. So I guess I was probably better than, than average, but um, he had a great piece of advice because as a kid, you want to just grab the next chess piece and move it when somebody makes, makes a move. And his advice to me was when somebody else moves, sit on your hands sit on your hands and watch and think. And I often take that into work myself. And I often use that as a quotation um, in work as well, because everybody wants to just react immediately to the problem. And there's times where you, as a team, you gotta sit on your hands and think about what to do next and not react until you thought it through. Very wise advice. And if you were going to write a CFO playbook, uh, what's the one thing that a CFO on this call can do tomorrow morning to help their companies or their careers or, or their lives? I think that um, the CFO has to, has to start with understanding what makes the business tick. If you understand what makes the business tick, you understand what creates value in the company, then you can use the finance function to help make that tick faster. Um, if a CFO starts to think internally about organization or finance functional finance things, those are all important, but that's not what a modern CFO gets paid for. They get paid to make the business work. Well, David, it's been a pleasure to see you. Thank you very much for sharing your stories and your experience and your career uh, with everyone today. Uh, I'm so excited about traveling again and beginning to use Bookings products. I just booked my first open table reservation at a restaurant in a long time. And I'm going to Austin, Texas this week, staying at a booking.com hotel. And so I, I'm, I'm really happy that life is beginning to get back to normal and, and I get the chance to use all the great products and services that Booking Holdings provides. Thank you very much, David. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, very nice to chat to, to you and appreciate Laura the invitation. Thank you all. Uh, so thank you, David. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, hope everybody has a great rest of your day. We hopefully will see you next time. Thank you. Very good. Thank you. Take care.